welcome to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast, where in every episode we explore what is research culture and what should it be. You'll hear thoughts and opinions from a range of contributors to help you change research culture into what you want it to be. Hello, it's Nick. And for this podcast, I'm joined by my colleague, Ruth Winden, careers with research consultant in OD and PL. If you haven't yet listened to Ruth's series of podcasts, you can catch up with her pay- playlist in the show notes, all about research careers. Or with mine, of course, discussing all things open research. My playlist also in the show notes. So Ruth and I decided to join forces today to talk to Daryl O'Connor, Professor of Psychology here at Leeds. Daryl is also the institutional lead for the UK Reproducibility Network and very active in promoting open science and improving psychological science in particular. So I've worked with him a fair bit in that context. We've done a couple of talks for our open lunch series of webinars, also linked below. And we both sit on the university's open research advisory group. So Ruth and I were interested in talking to Daryl about the role open research has played in his career and to what extent it may influence the career choices of today's young scientists and researchers as they forge their own academic careers or perhaps a career outside academia. So thanks for listening. And here's our conversation with Daryl. So hello, uh, Daryl, and uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Hi, guys. Lovely to be here. So um, we've just been chatting a little before we started recording, but um, today I'm joined by my colleague, Ruth, who is, just remind me, Ruth, what your job title is, because I got it wrong once already. (laughs) I'm a careers consultant and it's for researchers. Okay. And uh, obviously I'm Open Research Advisor. So I've worked with you, Daryl, in the context of open research in quite a lot of different areas, actually. So we're both on the Open Research Advisory Group, aren't we? Uh, we've worked with UKRN, the UK Reproducibility Network. You've done various talks for us. Well, before, and hopefully we'll get on to some of that, but before we do, it just occurred to me that I don't really know that much about your day job, as it were. You know, you're a professor of psychology and what's your actual sort of um, research about, you know, which I, I know all about your sort of meta research and the open research side of things, but you're not not your real research, I guess. <laughs> Great question, Nick. Um, yeah, so I'm a health psychologist who's got... Uh, strong interests in psychobiology. So I'm particularly interested, I suppose, a stress expert. So I've got this large research profile where I'm interested in, or portfolio where I'm interested in understanding how psychological stress leads to disease and uh, ill health and reduced longevity. So I'm then also trying to understand, you know, factors which might influence that process, the vulnerability factors, and also factors which might help protect people. So that's one thing. And then as part of that work, I am also interested in how it impacts on so different aspects of, of behavior, things like eating behavior, physiology, such as blood pressure, cortisol, mental health outcomes, and also uh, suicide behavior. And then also what interventions we can maybe develop, psychological interventions that we might be able to um, test and then intervene in a way which might reduce uh, the effects of stress on these range of different outcomes. But then I'm also a very... A, a related but still very different um, area of research, which I'm also interested in trying to increase cancer screening. So again, as health psychologists working with colleagues in psychology, we've been lucky to be funded over many years um, where we're trying to influence how the NHS increases uptake of particularly cancer screening and, and cervical cancer screening um, 
nationally. So we're, we're, we're doing quite a lot of work in that arena. And then as a third arm, then I've been interested now for many years now um, on how we can improve science and how we can improve psychological science in particular. But given that psychology has played a key role in um, changing the, the scientific landscape in the context of open research and open science, I've, I've been doing a lot of advocacy work um, over the last five, six, seven, eight years. So hopefully yeah. that gives you a useful background, Nick. Yeah, no, thank you. And, and in that context of you are obviously a professor of psychology, and I've spoken to quite a lot of psychologists in this space, in the open research space. Is there a particular reason for that? As uh, you know, maybe is it a bit of a double-edged sword? I sometimes wonder that people think that this applies more to the to psychology and the social sciences when perhaps that's not actually the case. I mean, that's a really good question, uh, Nick. So, um, and actually, there is a very simple reason why psychologists are, are been leading the way in this area was because we were the, the discipline who really looked at ourselves and really started to address the potential, this whole idea of the replication crisis. So way back in 2015, um, there was a publication, as you, I'm sure, are aware, and other listeners might be aware of, there was a key publication in the journal Science, which was led by a consortium of colleagues who were interested in trying to, um, to basically ex evaluate the extent to which psychological science could be replicated. So, um, so what they did was they, they looked at three of the leading journals. They tried to replicate 100 of these papers. And as a result, they found that less than 40% of these papers replicated. And this, you know, kickstarted, in fact, my interest in this area, um, but also it kickstarted a lot of other psychological scientists' interests. But what's, why that's important is because we really did seriously look at, this is not to say that prior to that, other areas of science were looking at reproducibility and replication. But actually, as psychology, psychology as a discipline, really grasped this and thought, well, let's look at it and let's do it, you know, in a way, let's evaluate what we can do differently, how we can improve, and also trying to understand the factors that have contributed to this low replication rate. But what is equally important is every single discipline has a replication crisis, or at least had. So what I find interesting and, and, and also equally irksome is that the point you've made that some people think this is a problem you know, to do with psychology. It's not, it's a problem of all sciences, genetics, clinical medicine, pharmacology, name it, it's got a replication crisis. But what it really tells us is we should be exploring more about openness, transparency, and reducing what many of you will be familiar with, this idea of questionable research practices. So really good question, because it really gets that point out there. And another thing I'll say is that I, I, many years ago at the Royal Society, maybe we'll talk about this, I arranged a meeting and, and about the whole replication crisis and how we can improve psychological science. And I gave a talk at that meeting and the talk was entitled Psychological Science as a Trailblazer for Science. Mm -hmm. And that at the heart gets to the message of where I'm at and why I'm interested in being an advocate for open science as a psychologist is that the, the amazing work that psychology has done and many of the, the key players, like I'm going to name Brian Nosak, which is a key player internationally in this area, you know, involved in setting up the, the open science framework. He is a psychologist. But the point is that we, all that we've done has really benefited all areas of science. So I think that's a great question, but a really important thing for listeners to be aware of. All areas of science are impacted. Thanks, Daryl. I want to bring... Uh... 
Ruth in on the career side of things. I mean, you, you've you've already sort of suggested, I think, that openness and transparency and sort of you know improving psychological science in particular has been sounds like quite a significant part of your career. So I, I won't ask you to tell us how long ago your undergraduate degree was, perhaps, but is it has it had first of all has it been a big part of your career, and is that likely to be the case for? students studying psychology now more so or less so is there is the landscape changed a lot over the years and then with that i'll hand on to ruth to ask you some more career related questions sure no again so science and psychological science has changed dramatically in the last 10 years you know it, it's you know the revolution is 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 still ongoing right in terms of changing how we do science and how and that's to do with transparency openness uh, integrity, pre-registration, all these other factors. For me personally, it really was the publication in 2015 of that um, that key article in the journal Science, which really turned me on to um, understanding this problem, right? And the reason why was at that time, I was um, chair of the British Psychological Society's research board. And the British Psychological Society, you know, it's, it's a huge organization. It represents in excess of 60,000 psychologists uh, nationally. And Research Board was a really key and important um, arm of the work that we do as, a, as an organization, the British Psychological Society. But myself as chair working with others, thought, well, um, we as psychologists, we need to embrace this, right? So this paper was published. There was all this negative publicity about science and psychological science. And I thought, well, and also there was a lot of really nasty um, uh, behavior going on, on on the web, on social media in particular. There was a lot of people, there was a lot of ad hominem attacks of individuals going after researchers in a way, which was to me, I thought was completely counterproductive. And the idea was if we want to change behavior and we want to um, move on and improve science generally, we have to do it in a collegiate, open and friendly, supportive way. So by one of my ideas working with other colleagues was way back in 2015, 16 was, and this is where I really got involved was, was going, well, let's try and change the message. Let's be positive. So we arranged this um, as part of the, working with what's called the Joint Committee in Psychology and Higher Education, working with the British Psychological Society and working with the Experimental Psychology Society. We then arranged this event in 2016 um, at the Royal Society in London. It was an amazing event. We invited people from all these key advocates and players from around the world, um, like Brian Nozak and others, to speak at this event, Marcus Manafo, another psychologist who's been a trailblazer in this area. And so it's from that moment, that really changed how, um, how I thought about my own work and how we all should start changing what we do. So that key point, I can really think back to publication of that paper, changed how I look at things. And then I, over then the next, how many, many years subsequently, that's, eight years nearly, I've been key. So I've been interested in trying to play a role where I can. So, uh, so I've done a lot of work in the British Psychological Society, but then that's broadened out into Europe. So I also chaired the, it's called the European Federation of Psychology Society Board of Scientific Affairs. So then we started doing work at a European level. I've been doing work in the United States as well with other colleagues in some of the key organizations that I'm a member of. So, so in terms of my career, so it's really become the strand of work that I have been keen to, to advocate for and to, to devote quite a lot of my time to. And, you know, other than there's lots of initiatives that, again, not working, working with many others, um, 
we've tried to then change the publication landscape. So the British Psychological Society, for example, has 11 journals, major scientific journals. So we worked hard then to introduce registered reports and um, as a, a new format for publication, and also to working with other international colleagues to publish papers and how we should best pre-register our research, et cetera, et cetera. So it really has become, alongside my, you know, my basic scientific research in terms of stress and health and screening and other related areas, I've really been working hard as well to try and advocate for open science. But the crucial thing, do it in a positive, collegiate way, yeah. which is very different to how things were in 2015, 16, 17. So that perhaps brings you in then, Ruth. Um, you know, we've talked, well, you've learned a lot, of, I think it's fair to say yourself, around open research recently. Uh, and uh... Yeah, definitely. I mean, led by, you know, you work on the podcast and inviting guests and having those conversations. And I'm, obviously when, when I listen to you, Daryl, you know, with my career professional hat on, you know, what I notice is something happened in your career, you know, in 2015 when this, you know, this big event happened and, you decided this is something I'm really interested in. I want to explore, and then you build more and more interest, and and we're obviously very very proactive in reaching out and connecting and publishing, and and so for me it's always about you know what what is how much does it come down to happenstance, how much does it come down to planning? Because when I work with researchers, you know, young researchers. It, it is very demanding career path, isn't it? And they say, oh, what shall I do? You know, and I often say you need to create your own opportunities. And what you described in your career, that very much sounds like it. Can you say a little bit about that from your perspective? Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting um, point to make, Ruth, actually. So from my point of view, it was initially happenstance in one sense. But then personally, I, I became intrigued with this whole idea and and I'm a positive person, very upbeat, and I and I and I kind of felt well, you know, I've got some key roles currently in terms of some of the, my professional activities. I thought, well, there's an opportunity to use the sort of things I like doing, which is getting out there and selling a story, or in this case, leading on doing what we could to promote a positive spin on on this whole open research, open science um, agenda. So, but. Then so it, then it became more planful. So initially it was it was the thing that happened, but then I, it got me thinking. You know, I think I've got a skill set where I can try and engage and use those those aspects of my personality and uh, my interest to then be positive in in a in a wider uh, and more national then become an, an international arena. But but it's interesting. Yeah, I remember thinking, oh, this is something that I really want to pursue. Um, and and I, you know, it's interesting, you know, even whenever I remember one key point where I used to have, we all have folders. I use Dropbox and we've got all these different folders on one's mm. uh, um, Dropbox. And I remember this one day where I, I created this folder called Open Science. And that's where all the open science things went to. And I think that point, really, I reflect on a couple of times thinking, well, actually, that was me then realizing that this is part of what I do and it's what yeah. I've then continued to do. And I mean, interestingly, in a slightly different note, I also recall, remember uh, making a new folder on my Dropbox called COVID-19. And <laughs> that was another interesting point where you think, think this is real now, right? This is something which I'm going to be pursuing in the whole research area, which we then also did. But yeah, so that was a turning point. But actually, 
what I also then, when I give talks on open open um, science, open research, um, there's a really interesting point I nearly always finish on, which is linked to a kind of careers type angle. And there's two angles. One is, one when I finish the talk, one of the final points is, and, and, and Nick has seen this probably when I presented um, in the university, is that I always say is that it's an exciting time to be a scientist because of all this, all these things going on. I always talk this idea, but it's an even more exciting time if you're an early career scientist, because there's all these balls in the air, all these different new techniques from statistics to approaches to um, platforms and tools that you really can grab one of those balls and run with it. So I think, you know, as I, and, and what's interesting to me is that lots of the brilliant people in this area are early career individuals at the University of Leeds and elsewhere and in, in nationally and internationally. But I also recall being at a meeting in, I think it was in Vienna, where it was an open, it was a large, um, I think it was a psychological science conference, and there was a whole big room, full session based on open science. And I looked around that room, and okay, it wasn't a scientific study, but my conclusion was the average age in the room was way south of 40. Wow. It would have been 30s at least. And that to me was an interesting thing where the people who were engaging with open research were more early career people or people earlier um, or further on the line, but still weren't the senior senior people who've been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's telling. But yeah. you know, anyone listening to this podcast from, there, from a career's point of view should be thinking, this is a great opportunity, grasp it and run with it. I mean, it's interesting you said because I look at AI and, you know, I need to know about AI and careers, but it's really interesting because what I see in my industry is it's actually the younger career professions who are really going for it all in. And I think wonderful because it's their future, whereas I'm much more going into careers and emotions and career conversations and more the the human side of it, where I go deeper and deeper and deeper and I and you can see the younger generation really going for all these new technologies and new threats, the new ethics, all these kind of things, you know. And one thing I wanted to ask you, and that is a personal curiosity, mm. and I hope that Nick doesn't mind, but I've driven my career a lot through professional associations. I've had the nickname Committee Girl at some point, which I thought was a bit of an insult, but I think it was meant because I was on so many committees professional standards and ethics and in you know internationally in the UK because for me it was always a wonderful opportunity to connect understand the sector be aware of trends new opportunities and contribute so when I looked at your description you know on the staff website about your background and you've you have not only had you know that distinguished academic career you also obviously had an you know very clear commitment to your profession in your leadership roles in the in the professional associations and i don't get the chance to talk about that very often with people <laughs> but i think being part of a professional association is actually incredibly clever career strategy can you say a little bit more about i mean yes you have that those leadership positions but as a, as a researcher what does it give you to be active in a professional association and what can that do for your career Again, Ruth, that's a brilliant question and so well observed because I couldn't agree more. It's such an important thing. And I and I, I think it's it's underestimated. So you're right, my entire career, I've always been active, particularly in the British Psychological Society yeah. early in my career. So from way back in 2000, I 
I remember, you know, joining that first committee as, you know, as an early career person. Um, and actually it was, it's about networking, it's about learning, it's about um, understanding how your profession works. But it's also, and, and, and so in virtually every one of those committees I've joined, I've become the chair or, or, or whatever the, the comparable um, leadership position might be. Because again, you learn, and then it's also about giving back to your profession. Absolutely. So it's a hugely important thing. And I think we all should be doing it, right? So, and actually it's nice to see, I mean, there's work that we're starting to do in terms of in leads and linked to the UKRM work, where about reward and recognition, right? But but to me, these sort of things are obligations. So in order to promote it, certainly in the academic, we'd be able to demonstrate how you of um you know well or not you've worked on committees what differences you've made etc big advocate of it um but the other side for me is that the sort of things i talked about earlier having those leadership roles as part of the professional associations if it's in the united kingdom or in the united states so i'm a, a member of what's called the american Psych like a somatic society bring all the open science stuff to another organization which again point is a good one an early career individual should or all of us should be thinking of being involved in relevant societies i just wanted to come in on that i'm just to, just a comment as well you're breaking up a little bit for me i don't know if it is is it for you as well ruth or yeah it, yeah I I think a little in in the past actually i found that the recording's okay because i think the way zoom works sometimes it doesn't actually affect it but we'll see um but just on that point that you were making both of you about the committees etc because i've done a lot of that as well in my career um, in libraries etc but I just had a bit of a question on that for both of you really to the, the extent to which that's enabled by um, working in an ac academic environment is it enabled enough for early career research because that's another part of research culture right actually giving people the time you know you're, you're under pressure to produce the grants or to write the research etc um, you know so and it's all very well you know, I'm being slightly devil's advocate that, you know, it's a hobby and I love, you know, open research and all the stuff that I do and I do, you know, stuff at home and in my spare time because it's 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 a hobby, but that's not for everybody. And perhaps there's a cultural aspect to that in terms of how academic careers in particular are facilitated and rewarded, maybe. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point, Nick. I mean, um, so I suppose personally speaking, Mostly, no, I was going to say, I don't think I've ever really had any workload re, um, reductions, for example, being a part of those roles. But actually, um, which meant, you're right, you have to work harder, right? And it just means you, you have to build, find the time to do all the other stuff as well. That said, things like REF, you know, these things are, are esteem indicators in REF in terms of universities. So universities could probably do more um, to be supportive of those roles. But I would never say that my department, they've always been supportive of it. So I think it's really important to be clear with that. Um, but if it was quite a, a very significant role, then I think you could probably could negotiate that into your workload. And now we've more transparent workload um, models, mostly. Um, I think there's ways to help. But the other side is it's just, it's not, I think it's important to realize that it's, there is the benefit you're given back and you're, you're, you're able to then put things in CVs in terms of promotion. But also the networking side cannot be forgotten because even then, you know, you're writing your grants, you're writing your papers, 
the fact is that you're you're increasing your your profile by involving these associations and yet and the conferences and the committees and the podcasts and whatever else might come with that that benefits you as well in terms of people know who you are when it comes to um to reading your grant application or reading your paper and then it also it can also increase other things come you know invitations come as a result of that as well so um i think let's not forget there's these hidden benefits which may not be explicit at the time i don't know if Ruth, if you'd agree with that as well yeah, and I also see I see some of the younger researchers, for instance, um, in engineering, and most of them are in you know in an association, and and they get a lot out of it because they go to events and they meet lots of people from different parts of their field, and they can have these conversations. It opens the horizons for me. That's a really big one, you know. In, when you're a young researcher and, and you think, oh, I know what I want to do, but you have maybe not necessarily looked at other opportunities or connections, or that's all what these associations give you. And for me, one one really big selling point is also from the university point of view, you never know what kind of connections you're making and what these connections lead to. So for instance, you know, research collaborations, um, at some point grant, um, being aware of, you know, what is being, what is the trend, what is new, what is what is not so much in demand, and all this, you know, sector intelligence that you get from being an association. And I think for me, one of the most beautiful things, and, you know, I've been at this for a long, long time, so I've been in associations for 30 years. I have lifelong friends, and they. when I look at some of my friends in my professional networks, the great majority come from associations where I was active. And there's also a real joy in feeling passionate about a specific profession and really helping others understand or, you know, helping the younger generation get mentoring opportunities and helping them learn and grow. So there's so many things that you can get from it. I'm just delighted, Daryl, that we can talk about it because, mm. you know, I mean, I, I'm a massive fan of professional associations as a career development tool and also as, as a way to engage with your profession. Yeah. Just, to, just to clarify and, that, I, t- I totally agree. I was just playing slightly different. Yeah, and, and I know, Nick, yeah, I know, absolutely. I know. Yeah. Can I sneak in one but, last but, question? But, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I mean, Daryl, and I just wanted to ask you, so, you know, for you looking at the younger generation coming through and you're saying, wow, you know, they're in a good place because there's so many exciting things happening. This is your time to really look at what interests you, what excites you. What else can they do? Because if I said that to people and I work with at the university, they say, yeah, Ruth, but still, you know, it's so competitive. What do I do? Because we're all brilliant and there are just not enough opportunities. So looking back over your career, what would you say? Is there a tip you can give to the younger generation following in the footsteps? Just before you answer that, Del, could I just add to that? Because the question I wanted to ask related to that, I suppose, was in terms of psychology, was it always about an academic career for you or did you think of other sort of avenues in psychology? No, actually, so to answer your question, Nick, no, I think it was always an academic career, actually. I always liked the kind of, you know, scientists running experiments and studies, and that was always that was always my route, so I wasn't thinking of going into a more applied or clinical setting. But as a health psychologist, there is a, there is a, all that route as well, so I'm a health psychologist, so I can, um, there's lots of breadth to the sort of things that I can do. But um, but Ruth, coming back to your, your your question, that's something which I answer as often as I possibly can. I think it's a really simple answer. The answer is, you know, my top tip to, to anyone who's willing to listen 
is collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. It's as simple as that. So, so that's the sort of thing I've always done. So even it links to the professional associations point earlier is that even the, there's many colleagues who I've sat on with committees or in chairs and worked with who I collaborate with in, on research, on research grants, on papers, et cetera. You know, I, I've been doing that for years, but I've always collaborated. Mm. And, you know, the key to success is not trying to, you know, furrow with a single, you know, little thing on your own and trying just to run on your own. I've always, always collaborated. And I've also been lucky. I've, I'm a monozygotic twin, as it happens. And my twin is also a professor of psychology at University of Glasgow. <laughs> and he and I have collaborated lots over many years. And that's been a, a, been a really fantastic joy to have because, you know, he can be early in our career, certainly, you know, we can be each other's you know, greatest critic. Um, I mean, that's a, twi- that's a twin twin study right there, isn't it, Daryl? That you both... <laughs> indeed it is, indeed it is. But so we've worked and we still worked closely together in lots of different ways. But but so that's been a real... Mm. I've been very lucky to have that. Um, so we've been able to support each other throughout our careers. But but the key thing is it's collaboration. Yeah. You know, and it's reaching out and it's networking and it's working with everyone, right? Mm. I, you know, I love working in teams and but the key thing is that you give everyone, you treat everyone with respect. You you make sure people get the due uh, credit for the work they may be involved in. But pl- collaboration, collaboration, collaboration—that's my tip. Thank you so much, Daryl. That makes a lot of sense to me. Thank you. And that's what we're trying to do with the podcast as well, isn't it, Ruth? And uh, absolutely, and I have uh, been collaborating with other colleagues. Um, so that was great. I just wanted to follow sort of final question for you to bring it back round to open research. And open science, Daryl, and perhaps bringing in your academic specialism as well. You know, how can we change behaviour? You've already sort of suggested that that, that you know behaviour is changing, and uh, some of the mechanisms by that's what's happening. But thinking of the younger generation going to undergraduate degrees now, are they getting taught this stuff as much as they need to be? Do you think are there other things that we could do in the university sector to actually change behaviour around science and move towards open science? I mean, Nick, you know as well, I mean, we could give an entire podcast to answer that question, but I'll be succinct. So the couple of things come to mind is, um, well, I think it's important that we we basically conceptualize science as behavior, right? So this is a simple idea. We've written about this in a couple of papers. And this is the idea that all the good stuff and the bad stuff, you know, the questionable research practices, et cetera, these are all behavior. So if it's from p-hacking to pre-registration, printing so what i think is important is is just getting people particularly people who are new to it and still resistant to open science approaches and i just i laid down this gauntlet which is just do one thing which is consistent with open science or open research and that can be as simple as pre-registering um an article or pre-printing an article or it could be you know writing your analysis plan in advance and posting it somewhere so i think you know, what we just need to say is don't see it as this gargantuan thing where people feel it's overwhelming. Just say, what small little thing can I do in the next 12 months to at least tick a box and say I'm engaging, moving towards using open research methods? So I think it's a really important thing and, and um, one that I think should reassure people. But the other thing, of course, which we haven't talked about today, but just briefly is, is the whole idea of the, the architecture of science and the incentive structure of universities ultimately and and other related organizations what is beginning to change is is that um, reward structure 
So at the moment, there's two things. The architecture science, what I mean is that for a long time, we rewarded quantity and not always quality. And we rewarded fast science and not slow science. So I think there's an important stuff that we're starting to change in how we think about those sort of things. And that's, you know, within organizations, how do we actually re reward people? Is it is there criteria on your promotions applications at every single level at your annual appraisals that help support and acknowledge people who are working in those sort of ways? Because sometimes it can be more time consuming to engage in open research practices. So there's that side of, of things. And then there's all the funders are changing and publishers are changing. So there are lots of things changing. In five years time, the scientific landscape will look very different in my view. Um, and even the changes in the last five years have been pretty impressive, I think. But there's still a huge way to move um, to engage more. But I fundamentally believe that by changing the reward and recognition structure in all areas, that's the key to success. Because as soon as you put you know, an incentive in there, which is going to be rewarded, then of course people will follow over a period of time. And indeed, I'm pleased to say that the University of Leeds, so we are um, we're, we're acting as a pilot institution. So the United the UK Reproducibility Network, uh, there's a piece of work which is about researcher reward and recognition and trying to improve that. Um, and we will be a pilot for that. So I'm hoping as things go forward, Leeds will further engage in that. And I should also put a shout out to the amazing work that Leeds has done over the last number of years, you know, we joined the UKRM, but you know, around the same time or just before, we also appointed, you know, deans of research culture, deans of, of research quality, and the brilliant work that Kat Davies is doing, the brilliant work that Amanda is doing as well, is incredible. I, the idea we've got a research culture strategy, we're ahead of many other organisations in that regard. So I, I'm excited. I think we're doing lots of great things, but really, it's about changing the reward and recognition structure that will really change behavior, which will change open research. Right, thank you. Well, that's basic psychology, isn't it? It's instrumental conditioning, I think I remember from my, my, my own psychology. Exactly. Or, 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 there'd be lots of different types of um, conditioning as well. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's great. Thanks very much for your time, Daryl. Thanks for listening to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast. Please subscribe so you never miss out on our brand new episodes. And if you're enjoying the discussions, give us some love by dropping a five-star rating and written review as it helps other research culturists find us. And please share with a friend and show them how to subscribe. Thanks for listening and here's to you and your research culture.